Welcome to Media Post Brand Insider Podcast, where we interview marketing executives on the strategies and insights that are driving their brands forward in challenging times. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at Media Post. Media Post has been covering the media and marketing scene for over 20 years. You can find highlighted in parts of these interviews in our Brand Insider newsletter. The newsletter and all of our industry reporting can be found at MediaPost.com. These podcasts give you access to the full recorded interviews. Let's welcome to the Brand Insider, uh, Scott Finlow, who is the Global CMO Food Service at Pepsi. Uh, he's had many roles at Pepsi. Over 20 years you've been at Pepsi, right, Scott? Correct. That's quite a haul. Uh, let's start by explaining to everybody what the food service piece of Pepsi is, what brands and what channels it, uh, it includes. The food service business is, uh, is uh, a business within a business at PepsiCo that really uh, supports all of our, what you might think of as non-retail businesses. So that includes uh, restaurants and lodging or hotels and travel and workplace uh, and other channels, rec and retail channels. So typically when you're out uh, living your life, working, uh, you're probably in what we would call a, uh, in a food service channel for PepsiCo. It's a global organization. It's also a full portfolio organization. So we represent all the brands of PepsiCo, uh, both beverages as well as foods. So we'll, we'll get to COVID in a second, but what you described is pretty much everything that shut down was what you covered. <laughs> yeah, back in March, it was, uh, it was a difficult time. What we found is that, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of our customers uh, remain uh, really challenged by, um, you know, by the environment we're operating through, particularly on the recreational side, certainly the lodging side, you know, some of our airlines, um, you know, we're all super aware of that. Uh, some of our other businesses have been able to come back more quickly, and I'm sure we'll get into that as we talk about, you know, channels like restaurants and the way that they've um, been able to respond, and we hopefully have been able to help them in that journey. Now, but before we get to the um, exactly what happened to you guys and how you managed the, um, the crisis, uh, let's talk about pre-COVID. Under standard operating uh, conditions, what, what is the media mix? for the food service side? In terms, who are you really marketing to and what channels are you generally using? Yeah, I mean, we start with our brands and uh, you know we're working with our brands and we're working to build our brands in the context of food service. So that's the way, uh, the way we start and the way we set it up. So if we're, it's Pepsi or Mountain Dew or Bubbly uh, to start with a couple of beverage brands, we're starting with what their objectives are. Uh, and then we're, um, you know, we're built in our plans in the context of those various food service channels. And because food service is a, uh, a very diverse set of contexts, you know, we're really working to develop plans, um, you know, in that context. So what we do at, um, uh, at a stadium is different from what we do at a college university is different from what we do at, you know, one of our restaurant partners like Taco Bell. Uh, and that's that's where we start uh and you know we're very interested in building those brands in contexts that are most relevant to them uh and what food service represents uh in many cases is an incredibly relevant moment uh, uh, a really great experiential moment uh to connect our brands to people you know in a time when they're uh, they're celebrating something or enjoying something or together with their friends in a social moment. Uh, and that's just a fantastic brand building context uh, that you know, we're really looking to work with every day. 
So uh, does that mean that the majority of your work is often in co is, is co-marketing agreements and projects that are happening more on site than in say media buys? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a combination. So, uh, you know, if you think about a restaurant customer, for example, uh, you know, we'll certainly be, um, facilitating or that brand experience on the, each step of the consumer journey. And that might start in a digital environment, uh, when you're, uh, ordering for, let's say delivery, particularly now, uh, if you're in the dining portion of the restaurant you're ordering there may be things we're doing you know in that context and uh, and then obviously there are media buys and there are co-marketing agreements on those media buys uh, as well mm -hmm. uh, and there's a big component which is what we're doing from a portfolio and an innovation point of view uh, as well you know if you think about maybe the the shining example to bring that to life would be Mountain Dew Baja Blast with Taco Bell um, you know, that's a food service innovation uh, that we've developed together with Taco Bell. And, uh, you know, that is, uh, uh, I would argue, an intrinsic part of the mountain, uh, rather the, uh, the Taco Bell experience for, uh, for a lot of guests. So let's go into March. Um, and, uh, and of course, you're working on a global basis. So you were probably experiencing this globally at different stages, you were seeing this happen elsewhere before it even got to the U.S. So, sort of maybe walk us through the timeline for you, where you started seeing it and had to respond to it, and then we'll talk about exactly how you did it. Yeah, and we did have the benefit of um, uh, of learning from um, you know the initial um, start of this in China and the way our team responded to this in China and some of the learnings from that. And I think that was helpful for us in terms of giving us uh, a fast start in food service. And I would say as PepsiCo more broadly, to be clear, uh, and that helped us under, um, excuse me, understand the importance of being really responsive, um, acting quickly, um, and also being really transparent transparent and clear within our own organization and to our customers, you know, in, in terms of how we responded. And we continue, I would say, to, you know, to learn from um, some of the actions in China, particularly from some of our big customers like Yum that uh, have, um, you know, big businesses in China and are, uh, you know, taking different actions there and learning there. So that's been helpful. I think as it came to the U.S., you know, really middle of March was when uh, a lot of this uh, became real for us um, uh, at scale. Uh, you know, our, um, our action initially was, I think, just to be incredibly responsive. And I'm proud of the way I think we listened um, uh, to our consumers, we listened to our customers, and we listened to our own employees for starters, and then we were responsive to that. And I think what, what we showed was, um, uh, at a high level across the board, uh, real empathy for each one of those um, people. Uh, I'll call them. We started with our own uh, our own team, um, making sure that everyone was okay, that they were safe, um, that their mental health was okay. Uh, we certainly spent a lot of time with our customers and then understanding the situation they were in and the, the challenges they were facing, and that's very much continued. Uh, and then consumers as well. We've done a lot of work from a research point of view to to make sure we're um, really understanding consumer action, but equally how consumers are feeling. Uh, and we've been bringing that to a lot of our operators and helping them um, understand and respond as well. 
Let me uh, go back to the term transparency you used, because I'm curious, what does transparency mean and look like in this context? What did you need to be transparent about and with whom in this process? Yeah, I think uh, it starts with our own team and our own employees. And I think, you know, from Ramon, our CEO on down, we've been very clear about our position as a company uh, in terms of looking after uh, the safety of our own employees in terms of investing and supporting our frontline employees who from, you know, call it March 11th on were uh, in and out of stores and in a higher risk environment. And, you know, we pivoted and, um, and, and supported them and made some, made some trade-offs in that regard. Uh, and we've been very transparent uh, in terms of the frequency of our communication about what are our plans, what changes are we making, but equally it's a two-way dialogue, transparency about understanding how our employees are feeling, how they're doing, how life in COVID and work in COVID has been going. And we've, um, we've worked hard to, uh, to maintain that connection and to ensure that we're understanding our own people. And I think that's been really effective in terms of making sure that they're engaged and responsive and that we're all um, just understanding one another and valuing one another through the course of this. And that's been, I think, a real uh, enabler of some of the work that we've done. And um, our organizational health is uh, is really strong through this, which- How did you do that? I mean, you're an enormous organization with many employees, especially on the line. Um, I actually have people, I have people in my family who are doing deliveries for a variety of companies. I'm really curious, what did you actually do practically to ensure that such a, you were actually getting feedback and getting information from that workforce that you could make use of? Yeah, it's it's not a magic bullet. Again, starts start from the top. I think Ramon on a weekly basis was, was probably communicating. There were a series of town halls that were, um, you know, Zoom town halls and WebExes. Uh, for me personally, um, three times a week, I had my full team on a Zoom and was sharing uh, relevant updates and also tapping and in, uh, tapping into the organizational listening, asking my leadership team to do the same and making sure that uh, for every individual on the team, we were trying to really stay connected and understand how they were doing and how they were feeling. And, you know, meetings, instead of starting with the work, started with you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And one of the benefits of Zoom is you can read people um, mm -hmm. on Zoom versus on a telephone. You can see them. You can, in many cases, see how they're feeling. And um, you, you mentioned that you were also trying to be responsive to consumers and you were trying to sort of read the data or read what, what they were, how they were feeling. What were some of the key insights you got about consumers early on that you felt you responded well to? Um, yeah, I think at a, at a high level, we mapped out uh, a series of phases that um, we believed the, uh, the consumer and um, our operators were going to go through um, in, from cocooning to restricted recovery to full recovery. Uh, again, we, we had a set of um, how people were feeling, uh, things like uh, very, very concerned, obviously, very, very anxious. Uh, concerned about uh, the safety of um, different uh, things that they were touching, brands that they were, you know, moments that they previously had not thought twice about. Uh, and then from a behavior point of view, you know, it was really for us most relevant was the degree to which customers were open or closed. And then on the restaurant side and the food and beverage side, how there was the retail stocking up behavior initially but also uh, for that at-home consumption and living. 
all of that delivery that we worked hard with our customers to to help them accommodate. And I can talk more about some of the things we did in that regard. Were you, uh, yeah, I, I want to get to that. I'm curious, since you mentioned you sort of mapped out the stages that you thought consumers were going to go to, did it work out that way? Did people sort of follow, did the behaviors follow that original map or were there particular surprises along the way? Well, I don't want to take credit for knowing what the future uh, was or anyone at PepsiCo. It's clearly not playing out. Uh, no one knew what would happen. And, you know, things we're seeing every day, um, you know, the ups, the downs um, and how things are playing out. So uh, it hasn't played out perfectly by any means in terms of um, a linear progress, nor necessarily some of the timelines we mapped out. But underneath that scenario was really the behaviors that we embedded that were most important, which was to make sure that we were going to be empathetic and continue to listen and be um, uh, as connected as possible. And then to make sure we were um, being responsive and willing and able to act fast um, as we responded. So, uh, you know, I think we operated as a more agile marketing organization in food service over the last four months than we had done arguably for any, uh, any period prior to that. You know, there are examples of things that we did that historically would have taken three months to develop that we did in three days. And there are trade-offs as you do that, um, but we've now proven that some things are possible that I think historically we didn't think were. What, what, are, what were some of those? Let's, do, let's drill into a few examples of the ways in which you sort of rapidly responded to uh, circumstances. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll start with um, one of the first, which, uh, you know, we worked with uh, the National Restaurant Association and Guy Fieri to stand up the Restaurant Relief Fund. Uh, and over the course of about a week, we uh, committed as uh, really the first big corporate supporter of, uh, of that initiative um, to stand up a program uh, that you're probably familiar with to support impacted restaurant workers. Um, we made an initial um, commitment that was significant, and then we worked with Guy uh, to really amplify that program and support him uh, in a way where we, uh, over the course of the program, helped uh, raise $23 million uh, to support those impacted restaurant relief workers. And that was something we started really quickly. We made a commitment to very quickly uh, across PepsiCo and the foundation. And then we we continued to develop that. And you know there were a couple of magic moments like the, some good news um, uh, work we did with John Krasinski and Pepsi that raised an additional $3 million um, that we committed in that moment. Uh, and I think raised a lot of awareness uh, on, uh, on the broader initiative and helped um, and help drive investment in that. So that's, I think that's a good example of, and the and the, and the the SGN moment was, uh, I think that came to us on Friday afternoon and uh, that happened on Sunday. So that all happened mm -hmm. 48 hours. You, you um, beyond those broader supportive measures, of course you had a whole piece of your clientele, especially the restaurant piece that was moving, had to move themselves radically to a delivery structure. Um, right. and, and, and I'm curious, what adjustments or support did you have to make to that? And, and what help could you be to that sector as they were struggling to change their entire model virtually overnight? Uh, a couple of things. Yeah, there were those that needed to change their model and those that were, you know, had the model in place. For those mm -hmm. that needed to stand up essentially a delivery model and a digital system, 
we quickly worked with some existing partners uh, like Toast uh, to essentially create some tools and products that uh, we could offer to our local restaurant customers to help quickly get them up and running on, uh, on digital ordering and delivery. And that was uh, something we did, I'd say, in the first two weeks of the pandemic. And, um, you know, I think that was uh, an initiative that tapped into existing partners and, uh, and just really helped um, the restaurants who needed that. For the customers who were already had those systems in place, some of our bigger customers, our national chains, we did a couple of things. Um, we were early partners in the Great American Takeout, which was on Tuesdays, was an initiative to drive delivery uh, uh, once a week and uh, continue to help those restaurants by uh, building awareness and uh, driving the frequency of delivery on Tuesdays. Uh, we did the Drinks on Us program, uh, which was in partnership with our uh, One World event that Bram Pepsi supported, if you remember that, um, that big uh, online concert that was done. Um, you know, that was remarkable. We ended up doing that not just in the U.S., but scaling that across 24 countries, uh, impacting, um, I believe it was 50 or 60 million people um, that we engaged with that. Uh, and that all happened in the course of two weeks. And again, typically that's a program that probably we would develop over, you know, three plus months. And we did it in, uh, you know, much, much less time. Um, and managed to build something that we were able to deliver as a scale platform across multiple customers and really help them out. What does success look like for some of these programs? I mean, you're, you're obviously you're aiming at somewhat having somewhat different impact than what you usually have. It's an extraordinary circumstance. But then, of course, these are also these are branding exercises. I mean, you are getting the brand out there and this is a way of keeping your various brands um, involved, both at the at the consumer level, but also at the partner level. Yeah. How do you or are you trying to uh, come up with metrics of success um, that help you replicate these these programs or, or use them in different forms later? Uh, we are. I do think there is um, an expanded set of metrics that are at play right now. Um, you know, as we focus on people and we look to help people and help our customers, uh, you know, that's a big part of what um, we're focused on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think for our restaurant partners and for the industry, we've managed to do that. If a metric that I wouldn't have thought I was coming into 2020 with a metric about raising, raising $20 million for, um, for impacted restaurant workers. That was not in, in my plans for 2020. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a metric that is different. Um, I think there's um, a relationship metric in terms of the way we've brought insights and partnership and support uh, on a number of different fronts to some of our customers just to help them navigate and survive. But to your point, there are some of the more traditional brand metrics. So if I take delivery, um, you know, we're looking at levels of um, uh, beverage incidents in delivery which was the metric that we had going into 2020. And it's still a metric that we're conscious of and trying to impact in our programs. We, we do want to uh, connect our brands to delivery and make sure they're, that the consumers who's ordering for that meal um, you know, has uh, the right beverage to pair with that meal and enjoy with that meal. And uh, we think that's never been more important than now given how much time they're spending at home and um, that they need moments of joy and entertainment and celebration uh, at home. 
How do you think you mentioned the word empathy several times? Which is not, by the way, just not something that marketers talk about generally. Uh, so I'm curious. So I'm curious as you think about that term, um, since it's clearly um, top of mind for you. How do you think about um, the long, the longer impact, or the longer effects, or the longer ways of understanding the role of empathy now in your relationship to your partners, your consumers, because. It is something that I think a lot of marketers have suddenly, if they didn't think about it before, they certainly are thinking about it now. But as we move forward, um, I'm wondering how we think about it long term. Does this change our relationship with our consumers, with our partners? Do we start thinking about empathy as just one of the variables that a marketer has to keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, to my mind, um, any marketer, um, you know, through time, it, you know, has been hopefully focused on empathy. I mean, marketing is about understanding people and the needs that they have, and then, you know, providing some kind of proposition or solution or product if you're in CPG to meet that need. And if you're not empathetic to those, we used to call them consumers or shoppers. I'm intentionally using the word people um, because I think people is um, how we need to understand, um, understand individuals in a fully rounded way. Um, so I, I think it's not a new thing. Uh, I think it's never been more important than now and never been more dynamic than now as we live through unprecedented change uh, in the world that not just we're working in, but the world we're living in. I mean, the pace of change and the degree of change is, it's incredible. And it means as a marketer, um, you know, that you have to be trying to understand and working to understand uh, you know, what is really at play? And I intentionally use what are the actions and what are the feelings because mm -hmm. you know, we need to understand both. And uh, I think that's going to be uh, more top of mind to your point and more um, resourced going forward um, than it's been in the past. I think, you know, the best marketers and the best brands have always done that. Uh, and I think those who maybe have um, neglected it for a period of time are hopefully going to see this as a time to recommit to understanding people and make sure they're resourcing uh, those things. And as they, in particular, as a, you know, a shout out for any business, um, you know, if you're looking at how to build your business in the future and how to future proof it and how to make sure it's set up for success, I think you have to start with an understanding of people, call them consumers, call them shoppers, but you have to do that. But I think what one of the points that I'm getting from from this conversation is that language matters and the word choice matters. And and yes, you're right in the uh, in generally that a marketer is should be about empathy. But we don't use that term very much. And when we use that term, it changes the way we think about it. And we start thinking about humans rather than consumers. And we start thinking about feelings rather than data points, and and empathy rather than knowing the consumer. And those matter, those terms matter. And I wonder if one of the functions of the last few months has been that it helps cut us, helps us cut through our own abstractions. So we, we stop using those, those buffers that we use between us and human beings and talking about our customers. I think it's a great point and I agree with it. Yeah, I think language matters um, in, a, in a really important way. Um, so, um, so the, the exit question is, what do you think permanently changes? from a marketer's perspective um, from this? What are, are there internal operations that you think are going to change in just the way that you, you guys are working with one another? Um, but also 
in, in, in terms of um, marketing projects or campaigns that you've started that you think will be permanent um, or just overall changes to the ways in which you relate to your consumers? Um, I do think there are some that are permanent. None of us knows the future, but what we can control is our own behavior and the way we, uh, way we respond. Some of them I'll reinforce and you know, empathy obviously is one of those in, in my mind in terms of being hyper attuned uh, to people. Um, the second I think is speed of action and responsiveness or agility in terms of as you have that understanding uh, really um, as an organization, especially a big multinational organization like in PepsiCo, uh, embedding behaviors and actions and you know, making sure that processes and structures don't get in the way of that to allow us to, to really to respond to that, um, to that insider understanding. And then as part of that, I think is really building um, a more valued partnership and striving to create um, more value almost as a service to the customers that that we have we're a b2b to c organization in food service so we've got a series of customers that every day they have challenges and problems to solve those are really um in high relief right now and i think we're learning that we have to um respond and meet the needs of those customers and those customers are um you know uh, those needs rather for those customers are shifting and I think that's going to be something we have to continue to uh, to do going forward as uh, as well so does that mean being less fearful because I mean obviously for a major brand like like Pepsi and for all all big brands part of that bureaucracy and that lag had to do with people being careful about the brand and I, I wonder if have you learned at all that brands can make mistakes um, and 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 um, uh, and recover from them quickly, that there is a way to make mistakes and not, not feel as if you've permanently damaged the brand? Yeah, I think a, a brand, I'm, I'm glad you raised it. Um, I think it's important to have courage to be brave, um, to take a position. Uh, I think companies and brands increasingly need to have a purpose and uh, define that purpose and then act behind that purpose or mission or whatever they want to call it. Um, and I think brands will be recognized for um, that purpose, whether they um, have it or maybe potentially recognized if they don't. So I do think that's important. And um, I agree that that's going to be something that we take forward. And I think as a company, PepsiCo uh, increasingly does that. And I'm proud of the company uh, and the way we've defined our own purpose and the way a lot of our brands have defined purpose. So many of our brands, we haven't talked about it. Um, our company and our brands uh, have really stepped forward um, in the current unrest moment around racial equality. Yeah, I wanted uh, to ask about that because yeah. that seems like the natural extension of everything you're talking about is how does how does a brand respond in this moment? Yeah, I, I completely agree, and that's in many ways that's there's an evolution in terms of supporting, um, being empathetic, understanding, and um, taking a stand in a position, and making uh, making a commitment to help. And in this instance, it's a different kind of help, right? And we have to all recognize that. This is um, years, decades, you know, centuries of structural injustice, racism and inequality. So that's not a typical problem to solve that we as a food and beverage company are uh, equipped and used to solve. So 
we've got a lot to learn. Uh, we've got to make sure we're tapping into uh, different voices and really understanding the situation to a much higher degree. And uh, you've seen our commitment. We've made a $400 million sustained commitment as PepsiCo um, uh, in support of that. Um, I'm really excited about, and hopefully that's the right word, about the commitment we've made to support Black-owned local businesses with a focus on restaurants and the work that our team can do to help um, those Black-owned local restaurants. And we're doing a lot of work to build those plans. And, um, you know, I'm uh, really, really committed and excited about um, the value that we can bring, the help that we can provide uh, in that regard. And I think it's a a natural evolution from how we've been really focused on people and trying to help people with our business and with our brands. And that's been really our mission and purpose since COVID hit. And, um, and now we're going to take that to um, really those black owned local restaurants and more broadly to address racial equality in, uh, in North America. And, you know, what better purpose and bigger purpose is there um, to serve than that? It's, it's wild and bizarre coincidence that some of the uh, that the COVID crisis sort of forced brands to develop a set of muscles um, and rapid response that ultimately proved extremely important um, for the next social crisis, which was which was racial inequality and, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't think we, they're not. I don't want to equate them per se, but I think it's more. Than no, but I mean, simply yeah. that they were two crises, two, two moments of truth for, I think, brands that uh, and, and one force, one sort of forced brands to respond in a way and with a speed they never had before. And those muscles became very important for the, for the next moment. Yeah, I think behaviorally, um, it, we were uh, probably better positioned um, to respond. And then purpose-wise, um, we were uh, maybe slightly better positioned to respond to. I like, I like to think our purpose and our commitment would have been exactly the same mm-hmm. um, without COVID. Um, you know, potentially there's, a, there's an impact and a, and a momentum there. The, the, uh, you know, the arc of history bends to the positive. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a couple of moments in the last six months that hopefully where PepsiCo and some of our brands and uh, most importantly, I think our people and the work we're doing and what we care about and what we're committed to, uh, you know, is pointing in the right direction. Well, Scott Dinlow, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, appreciate it. My, uh, my pleasure. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to share perspective on some of the things we're doing. I uh, appreciate the time. And thanks for tuning in to Media Post Brand Insider Podcast. You can keep up to date with breaking marketing and media news at mediapost.com. That's also where you can subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter, where highlighted versions of these interviews can go to your email inbox each week. If you have any comments or suggestions for the Brand Insider series, please send them to me, steve at mediapost.com.